stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Joining me today on Pod Save the World is Tony the Mooch Blinken. Just kidding. <laughs> Tony Blinken. Tony served in the Obama administration in a number of hugely important roles. He was the Deputy Secretary of State. He's the Deputy National Security Advisor. And before that, he was Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor. We all miss Vice President Biden being on the scene and hope he does more. Um, you're also a Staff Director on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many years. So you've you worked on foreign policy from every end of Washington. So thank you so much for joining us. It's great today. to be here, Tommy. Thank you. And we're in a, the most beautiful studio you've ever seen in really Santa Monica, are. and I never want to leave. So I want to start with a lightning round. Is Iran going to nuke us? Not tomorrow. Okay. Is Russia going to nuke us? Uh, not tomorrow. Is North Korea going to nuke us? <laughs> well. <laughs> okay. So that one feels like a problem. Okay. On Iran, in all seriousness, the Iran deal is in place, right? And by law, the administration is required to notify Congress every 90 days about whether or not Iran is living up to its obligations under the Iran deal. The New York Times reported recently that President Trump was angered during a debate about the certification process. And I guess he spent hours going back and forth with his national security team about it because they all wanted him to recertify it and preserve the deal. That group reportedly um, includes Secretary of State, Defense, the National Security Advisor, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He has every right to disregard their guidance. Uh, President Obama has done it on issues during his tenure. But I was hoping you could talk about the Iran deal certification process. What are Iran's obligations? And do you think they're complying with the deal as, as we put in place? Well, the short answer is they are complying. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of the IEA, mm-hmm. uh, which is there to monitor uh, among other things, compliance with the agreement. You can take the word of our intelligence services and uh, and our military. Uh, and the short answer is they are, they are complying. But step back for a second, mm-hmm. and we need to remember how we got here. Because if you go back to 2008, when Obama came into office, we inherited uh, an Iran that was on the threshold of having the capacity to build a nuclear weapon mm-hmm. uh, and to get the fissile material for a nuclear weapon very, very quickly. In fact, you were in meetings where we found a secret nuclear site and Ooh, disclosed them. We've Indeed. <laughs> we were both there. And uh, we rem- I'm sure we both remember it very, very well. But they'd mastered the fuel cycle. Yeah. They were speeding toward having 19,000 centrifuges. They had enough low-enriched uranium that in further enriched was enough for 10 to 12 uh, nuclear weapons. They had four pathways to a bomb. Uh, a couple of uranium sites at Natanz and Fordow, a plutonium site at Iraq, uh, and then possibly a covert program mm-hmm. uh, that we didn't know much about because we didn't have a lot of uh, eyes and ears on the on the ground. Mm-hmm. And president went in and said, we have to prevent them from getting the capacity to have a nuclear weapon. We looked at every possible way of doing that, and we determined the best way was to get them to the table to negotiate. And the question was, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And so we built up incredible pressure going around the world, country by country, to put in place not just American sanctions, but international sanctions. And ultimately, all of that together got Iran to the table. 
We got a deal. We cut off all of their pathways uh, to a bomb. Uh, we made sure that uh, the centrifuges that were spinning stopped spinning. They're down to under uh, to about 5,000. Virtually all of the uh, enriched uranium was, uh, was shipped out. The heavy water was shipped out. And the end result is that instead of being just a few weeks from being able to make enough material for a nuclear weapon, they're now a year away. Mm-hmm. And this is pushed far now into the future. At the same time, the most intrusive inspections and monitoring that we've ever had. And when this deal is in place, not only is it effective in, in stopping what they were speeding toward, but even if you project far into the future, when some of the constraints start to go away in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, an American president then will be in even uh, not only in the same place that an American president was in 2008 in terms of having every ability to do something about it if Iran chooses to speed to a bomb again, mm-hmm. but he'll actually be or she'll actually be in a much better place. We'll have 15 or 20 years of built up knowledge of their program, the people, the places, the technology, the entire supply chain. Mm -hmm. We'll have 15 years or 20 years of having denied them the ability to make progress on their program. Uh, And we will have used that time, hopefully, to build up our own capacity to do something if Iran chooses to break out. Final thing that's worth saying, though, uh, is this. Even when the constraints in this agreement go away after 15 or 20 years, Iran is forever prohibited under the Nonproliferation Treaty from developing a nuclear weapon. It's forever prohibited from developing weapons themselves and from testing weapons technology. And it's going to remain under the so-called additional protocols, very intrusive inspections regimes, forever. Mm -hmm. So what we have now is a good thing for our security. It's a good thing for the security of countries in the region. And if Iran is making good on the agreement, the last thing we should do is decertify them, because then we're heading straight toward a crisis. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Stepping back a little bit, I think people don't necessarily understand or or think about the fact that Iran has politics and they have debates and they have factions in the same way we do. I'm not saying that I agree with President Rouhani's politics or condone things he's done and said, but he has to deal with hardliners who attack him and want him to walk away from the Iran deal. He often says inflammatory things that seem designed to appease that audience that we don't like hearing. So a two-part question for you. It seems to me that even the the people who are considered adults in the room uh, in the Trump administration, people like General Mattis, have pretty intensely anti-Iran views. And I worry about the fact that we were able to brush off a lot of Iran's rhetoric and sort of see it for what it was. Question one, do you worry about it escalating with these guys? And then question two, and more importantly, the Iranians are hardly good guys, and you're not saying that, and I'm not saying it, but they've supported terrorism, they've armed separatist groups in Yemen, they needlessly antagonize our Navy ships in, in the Gulf. How do we deter those activities without pushing them to withdraw from the deal? Well, I think you put your finger, Tommy, on two absolutely critical points. The first one is this. You're right. Uh, their politics is intense. And, you know, when you hear Iran talked about in the United States, you sometimes get the impression that we think they don't have politics, right. when in fact they have some of the most bare-knuckled, uh, aggressive politics of any country uh, that I know. And it's not that Rouhani or the foreign ministers of Reef uh, are necessarily what you'd call uh, moderate by our terms, right. but they are pragmatists. And they see Iran's future as being more integrated in the international community. They think that's going to be better uh, for Iran's prosperity and for its security. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to make it, as best they can, a somewhat more responsible actor. Um, and at the same time, you have hardliners uh, for whom the very logic of Iran goes away if you take away the reasons for the uh, for the revolution. So here's the interesting thing. When we were advancing the nuclear agreement, we talked what it was designed to do, which was to prevent Iran from getting 
uh, enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Now, sometimes people said, well, it may have other positive effects. It may help change the nature of the relationship between the West and Iran, between the United States and Iran. But really, this was just about nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is this. If you read the Iranian press, if you listen to the debate in the Majlis, the parliament, and it's all out in the open, a lot of the hardliners in Iran who are trying to sabotage the agreement from their side, they see it as a Trojan horse. Mm-hmm. They see it as a way of the West getting its foot in the door and starting to open Iran up and take away the entire rationale Mm -hmm. for the revolution and for the system. That's what they're worried about. That's why they're trying to stop it. Here's the problem, though, and this is the second point that you raised. We've got to get the balance right between preserving the agreement as long as Iran continues to abide by it, while at the same time standing up against their very nefarious activities in Mm -hmm. terms of supporting terrorism, in terms of destabilizing other countries, in terms of intervening uh, in one place or another. And that's a very tricky balance to get right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we were very clear when we did the nuclear agreement that that didn't mean that Iran got any kind of free pass on these other activities. We were very clear that if necessary, we'd continue to sanction them, to stand against them uh, if uh, they continue to do these things. Uh, And we need to keep doing that. But what we shouldn't do uh, is to try to use these other activities as an excuse to undermine the agreement. Um, here's the game that's being played. Those in uh, our own government who don't like the agreement know that sort of frontally pulling out uh, of it and that's being blamed for its demise mm-hmm. is not a good place to be. It'll create right. a crisis with our own allies, right. with, with France, with Germany, with the UK, as well as with China and Russia. So the game, the art of the non-deal, is to provoke the Iranians into getting out of the agreement. And so the more you can stick it to them in other places, the more you hope the hardliners uh, will uh, do something to to undermine the deal. So this is really hard because we have to stand up against uh, their aggressive actions. At the same time, uh, we shouldn't be looking for ways to undermine the nuclear agreement. So you think he should just tweet at him like Jeff Sessions (laughs) and call him uh, beleaguered? No, like, thank you for all that context because I think... You explaining the sort of sweep of the situation here, I think, gets at the reality of every White House Situation Room meeting that makes it to the president. It's never black or white. It's never simple. I mean, absolutely, the fact that the Iranians fund Hezbollah is a huge problem, and we need to stop them from doing that. There are these Houthi separatists in Saudi Arabia that are fighting against the Saudi government. They arm them, and we interdict ships as they send ships. It's never been totally clear to me how... Managing the Houthi problem is in our core national security interest, but certainly, you know, it is an irritant that we that we work on. But the Obama administration carved out the Iran nuclear deal because we saw them getting a nuclear weapon as this existential. Right. Imagine, threat. imagine if they're doing all of these bad things and they have a nuclear weapon to boot. <laughs> yeah. That's an even worse place to be. Right. Uh, it gives them the feeling they can act with impunity. So taking that off the table uh, makes us a heck of a lot more secure and makes it if not easy, at least a little bit more doable to deal with some of these other nefarious activities. Right. I mean, and then just sort of perfect segue to Mike's question is, I wonder what you think the Iran deal can teach us about the best way to approach North Korea's nuclear program. Because, you know, Kim Jong-un is firing off ballistic missiles like they're bottle rockets at this point. The range on those missiles is increasing at a pace that is far exceeding expectations that I've seen previously. I mean, there are some reports recently that they could reach Washington, D.C. That was viewed as being a several year off uh, scenario. Uh, I've seen estimates that they have up to 40 nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Are they too far along the path 
to the nuclear program and too unpredictable for the Iran deal to be seen as a model? At some point, do we have to give up on ending their program and have to manage the reality that they're now a nuclear armed power? We're right at the edge. We're very, very close to that point. And here's the problem. Look, administrations going back to the early 1990s have tried and failed to curb North Korea's nuclear ambitions. We had one period under the Clinton administration with something called the Agreed Framework, Mm -hmm. where we actually stopped their plutonium program uh, for about six years, uh, and that was promising. Then it turned out that they had some kind of um, surreptitious uranium-based program. Uh, They accused us of not fulfilling our end of the deal. The Bush administration came in. We had the axis of evil, and all of this collapsed. Were you in the NSC during Yeah, I was, and that was actually a, a successful thing. But here's the difference. I think that Kim Jong-un, the current leader, his grandfather and father at that point saw nuclear weapons and the technology around it as a bargaining chip. Yeah. Um, he seems to see it as the ultimate insurance policy yeah. to his survival. So very, very hard to get him to give it up. There's not a good military fix here. Uh, most of the nuclear program is buried deep underground uh, in mountains. Increasingly, it's on mobile uh, platforms, so you can just wheel out a missile in a few moments, fuel it with a solid propellant mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Uh, And so it's very hard to take out preemptively. Even if we could, even if we knew where everything was and we could take it out, they have 10,000 or more pieces of artillery, rockets, you name it, 30 miles from Seoul, South Korea. If they got off that kind of conventional salvo in retaliation for us taking out their nuclear program, it would decimate Seoul. Right. So there's not a good military fix. And so that leaves you with negotiations. And the question is, is there still a way and is there still time to get this guy to the table? And I still think that with some extremely intense combination of pressure and also, unfortunately, some inducements, Mm -hmm. there may be still a way to do that. But the window is closing, Mm -hmm. closing, closing. It's getting to the point where not only does he have an ICBM that can hit us on the continental United States, but a miniaturized nuclear weapon that you can put on top of that ICBM uh, and get here. I don't think they're at that point yet, but Mm -hmm. they're getting very, very close. Yeah. And, you know, it's always confused me. I mean, obviously, them being able to hit the, the United States mainland is a game changer for anyone who lives in the country. But we have 28,500 U.S. troops in, in South Korea. So, I mean, the fact that he could attack them tomorrow is disconcerting to begin with. But I've had a number of conversations recently about Kim Jong-un and the calculus that North Korea has and how they look at a nuclear weapon as the ultimate deterrent. And they look at Libya and they say Qaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons and he was killed in the streets. I was talking to um, Julia Yaffe recently, who's a Russia expert and reporter. She was talking about how she thinks that the turning point for Putin was when Medvedev allowed the UN to move forward uh, with the Libya authorization. Do you ever sit back and think, shit, maybe that wasn't the best idea? (laughs) Incredibly challenging in the context of the times. Because remember, um, you had Gaddafi moving on Benghazi and poised to slaughter thousands, tens of thousands of his fellow citizens. Kill them like rats, I believe. That was exactly the quote. You had the international community standing up saying something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. All of Libya's neighbors, our European partners saying they were in on this and they wanted to play a lead role. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Security Council uh, standing up for yeah. once and saying, yes, yeah, something needs to be done. The Arab League. So, and the Arab League, exactly. So this seemed to be a, f- a somewhat unique situation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the intention was to go from stopping a slaughter to changing the regime. But that's right. ultimately what happened. And yeah. I think the Russians did feel right. like uh, they'd had the wool pull over their eyes. In this, And, of course, the great uh, difficulty we had in bringing any kind of basic stability to Libya after Gaddafi is gone, leaving to some extent a vacuum for extremist forces to fill, yeah. including ISIL uh, and others, you know, it certainly begs the question, was it the right thing to do? But 
I think in the moment, in the context of the time, stopping this human slaughter uh, was the right thing to do. Um, I wish we had been more effective at the day after. But it just goes to the the point that um, in all of these situations, figuring out the day after is as important, if not more important, than figuring out the day of. You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit nofeardentist.com. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Let's talk about the State Department for a bit. You were the Deputy Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. You know, you spend a lot of time all around the world, but also a lot of time, I, I assume, managing the building, working with the team there, Heather Higginbottom, Secretary Kerry. For me, Secretary of State Tillerson is probably the most disappointing cabinet member. I thought, here's a guy who has this impressive management experience. He's got relationships with leaders around the globe. He could be great at this. It was sort of an un-Trump pick. You could mm-hmm. see Mitt Romney making him his secretary of state. Mm-hmm. It seemed like it was sort of a, a thoughtful, like outside-the-box choice, potentially. But instead of, of rising to the moment, in my opinion, he's sort of shrunk from the job. He's let the White House control personnel and policy. The department is being gutted. People are don't have any guidance. Given my very, very leading intro, what is your, <laughs> what's your assessment of his record? Have you talked to their team and uh, thoughts on the what's happening over there? I've had some conversations, not with him uh, yeah. directly, but but with others. And look, um, I knew him a little bit in his uh, capacity as running Exxon. He was incredibly impressive, very effective CEO, one of the great uh, great companies in the world. And certainly, I hope too that he would bring that kind of uh, knowledge, experience uh, uh, to the State Department. On the one hand, uh, in terms of bringing people in, other than my successor, who by the way is a terrific guy, John Sullivan, the Deputy mm-hmm. Secretary of State, uh, a veteran of, of Bush forty three. Commerce Department, the Defense Department, he's doing a terrific job. Mm -hmm. But other than John, there is to date not a single Undersecretary of State or Assistant Secretary of State 
uh, who has been um, nominated and confirmed. Why? Uh, Why would you hamstring So yourself? here's the catch-22. Um, there were a whole bunch of incredibly well-qualified people who were never Trumpers and had signed letters. Right. They're eliminated. Second, a group of people who didn't sign these letters, but for one reason or another decided they didn't want to serve. Mm-hmm. Third, though, and this is where it gets more complicated, um, it seems as if the secretary is um, pursuing a restructuring of the department. Mm-hmm. And part of the argument is, well, until we figure out how we restructure the department, we really shouldn't bring people in to fill jobs that may not be there when we finish the restructuring. Yeah. Now, there's a certain logic to that, except that under no possible restructuring, whatever it is, could you imagine not having an assistant secretary of state for Europe, yeah. for Asia, for Africa, for the Middle East, right. for Latin America? Why not fill those jobs now? Continents. Uh, <laughs> small <laughs> continents, minor continents. So that's one part of the problem. But, you know, you could still compensate not having uh, these folks in confirmed jobs if you turn to the career foreign service and civil servants and relied on them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, for whatever reason, they're not doing that. There seems to be a real suspicion of career officers, to date at least. They've been marginalized. They haven't been brought in. Mm-hmm. They haven't been included. Look, Tommy, you know these guys and gals. I know yeah. them too. Yeah. Whatever their views, they check them at the State Department door. Right. They want the Secretary of State to succeed. When his voice is heard, their voice is heard. So they're there. They want to be called upon. And unfortunately, to date, uh, they've not been. That really penalizes the department in two big ways. First, the intellectual capital that you need when you're developing policy, when the secretary is in the situation room debating what the policy should be, he needs to have with him and behind him that intellectual capital that experts at the department give him. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have that um, because he's kind of home alone, just a couple of people really advising him. So that handicaps the department. Second, when the policy is actually decided, you need people to implement it. And that's the assistant secretary. Uh, and the deputy assistants, these are the key people day in, day out, mm-hmm. who are really uh, our connectivity with countries around the world. If the right people are not in the job there, the State Department is seriously undermined. It's just, it's so weird to me that he wouldn't, he never met with Kerry before they uh, before mm-hmm. he left. I mean, there's, there's, as you just said, there's so much institutional knowledge in that building that could be used. And it seems to me that there's this concern or paranoia about leaks or liberal moles or whatever that is just subsuming everything else they're trying to do. But on top of that, you have him accepting these draconian budget cuts that the Trump administration proposed that I think would just, you know, would gut the State Department, would gut foreign aid. And I just, I can't imagine how you could actually implement that. It's uh, one of the biggest challenges that they face because the president and the Office of Management Budget originally proposed a 30% cut across the board, State Department, Mm -hmm. AID, and that would gut our diplomacy and would gut our development. And what I think people have to remember is (laughs) diplomacy and development are not favors we're doing to other countries. They're profoundly in our self-interest. First, uh, the more you actually put into diplomacy and into development, the more likely it is that you're going to prevent a conflict from arising in the first place or Mm -hmm. instability from taking hold in the country in the first place. We all know Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, has famously said that if you don't give the State Department its full budget, you better budget more bullets for me because <laughs> we're going to have more conflict. So you lose that. Right. Um, second, you lose potential partners in all sorts of things. Um, when we help build up these countries through diplomacy, uh, through development, they over time become 
incredibly effective partners for the United States. Right now, 11 out of our 15 top trading partners in the world were once recipients of foreign aid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Strengthening their economies has strengthened our own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, of course, the partners that we need to deal with every conceivable conflict that doesn't have a unilateral or military solution, an epidemic that's crossing frontiers, Mm -hmm. hackers who are jumping firewalls, a planet that's warming, and uh, oceans that are rising. All of these things and so many more demand partnerships. That's what our diplomacy buys us. That's what our development assistance buys us. If we're taking that away, we're ultimately tying our own hands behind our backs. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that makes me nervous when I think about it is, you know, Despite Trump's seeming best efforts to destabilize our country and the world, things are things have been relatively quiet. There have been horrible incidents, ISIS attacks. North Korea is a huge problem, but there hasn't been a major crisis yet, and there will be. One area that seems fairly close to boiling over are tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, there was this horrible attack on two Israeli police officers, a huge subsequent backlash to additional security measures that the Israelis put in place in the wake of those attacks. Can you talk a little bit about why the Temple Mount is so important to both sides, and, and if you think the prospects for peace are sort of gone? The, the bottom line is that um, unless the parties want peace, it's really hard for any outside power, even the United States, to impose it on them. We can't want it more than they do. And for a variety of reasons, the politics, both in Israel and among the Palestinians, are not pointing in the direction uh, mm-hmm. of peace. And that makes it a huge, huge challenge. Um, look, from the perspective of Israel and our strong, unstinting support for Israel across administrations, across generations, those of us who believe and want a strong, democratic, and Jewish Israel are at the point of seeing that becoming an impossibility because Israel being Jewish and democratic is not going to be possible if they continue uh, to hold on to uh, the territories and to try to uh, dominate Palestinians who live there. The choice is either going to be to give Palestinians their full rights, mm-hmm. in which case Israel will no longer be uh, be Jewish because with population uh, and demographic change, that won't happen, mm-hmm. or uh, keep things as they are, and it's not democratic. I don't think any of us want to be part of the generation that gave up on the dream of a Jewish democratic Israel. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, you've got to have a partner to make peace, mm-hmm. and the Palestinians have not been that. Now, Here's why I'll actually give the administration some credit. They've been engaged on this issue. And the person that they've designated uh, to work with Jared Kushner on this, Mr. Greenblatt, Mm -hmm. by all accounts, is doing a good job. Um, He's listening. uh, He's engaged. And if you can get people talking, you may not get anywhere, but usually talking is a lot better than stabbing and shooting. Mm -hmm. So I think we have an incentive to try to get something uh, moving, uh, even if ultimately uh, you don't get anywhere. At the same time, what they've been trying to do is something that we worked on, which was to get the Arab countries to stand up and improve their own relations with Israel, to build a climate of greater confidence. And that may be still the best uh, direction to go in. But right now, in terms of both Israel and the Palestinians, the conditions just aren't there to actually make these hard choices that are necessary to make peace. Do you think that was the case for the last eight years. I mean, Obama made this huge push to try to get to Middle East peace. And I can't I can't tell if we screwed something up, if there was a missed opportunity, or if Palestinian leadership was too weak and, and Bibi Netanyahu just never wanted a deal and didn't care if it failed. Yeah, look, uh, the hindsight is twenty twenty, yeah. uh, And 
it's even on this one i don't know <laughs> and but yes the, exactly what i was going to say uh <laughs> and look it, this is bedeviled um administrations going back decades and decades but i still come back to the the basic proposition that as much as we might want it as what much as we might try for it unless and until israelis and palestinians really want it and that's when we can play the critical role mm-hmm. of building confidence supporting the process being the right uh, intermediary, uh, even as we uh, strongly support Israel and its security, which is sacrosanct. Unless you get to that kind of moment, um, it's just very hard to get to yes. More nerdy foreign policy coming up on Pod Save the World. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Venezuela has been boiling over for months. I think they've had three months of nonstop protests. There have been these massive protests. I think 100 people have died. President Maduro, sort of the JV Hugo Chavez, who's in charge now, is trying to change laws and the Constitution to further consolidate power. This feels like another pot that could boil over. How can worried about you or about what's happening in Venezuela and, and how destabilizing it could be for, for Latin America? And do you think the United States should be doing more? Yeah, so this pot is about to explode. Uh, and this has been a long time in the making. I mean, you go back to Chavez before Maduro uh, and then Maduro, and, you know, you had Chavez who was able to effectively exploit uh, an aborted coup. Mm-hmm. Um, he was able to exaggerate the foreign threat to Venezuela. Mm-hmm. He started to undermine every single government institution that posed a threat uh, to his rule. Uh, he repressed the opposition. 
he mismanaged the economy into the ground and Maduro has continued to do the same thing and foreign investment is gone. Inflation's now about a thousand percent, really hard for people to get food and medicine. Uh, folks are out on the streets and now, as you said, they've got this vote coming up this weekend to basically rewrite, uh, to put in place a body that would rewrite the constitution to give, in effect, absolute power yeah. to the current government uh, or regime. So this is going to um, explode if something uh, is not done. Uh, the administration announced that it was imposing some sanctions, additional sanctions, on some of the elite figures, both former uh, and current government mm -hmm. um, uh, figures. And that's the right thing to do in terms of freezing their assets, uh, denying them travel. Yeah. Um, that is one way to just make sure that people who are supporting what Maduro is doing pay a price. But they're also looking at much deeper economic sectoral sanctions. And that's really tough because mm -hmm. on the one hand, you feel like you want to do something and right. you've got to express yourself in some way in opposition to this. On the other hand, given the uh, fragilities, too weak a word, given the dire straits of the economy, those kind of sanctions could really push uh, Venezuela over the edge. We do have a real hold on their economy. We get about 10% of the oil that we import from Venezuela. Uh, it's very significant to them. But if we push too far uh, in terms of much broader economic sanctions, there is the danger of some kind of collapse right. um, if these are not calibrated very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and if humanitarian uh, food, medicine is not exempted, there is the danger that Maduro uses this to turn on us and to point the finger at us and make us responsible for yeah. what he's done. Yeah. And you risk a little bit the kind of Cubanization of our relationship with Venezuela. Hmm. Now, if we were still in a place where we had the support and confidence of virtually everyone else in the hemisphere, which we got by restoring diplomatic relations with Cuba, then we might be able to kind of pull this off collectively. But we're now totally out of phase again with most of the other countries in the hemisphere because of the administration's reversal uh, of our Cuba policy. That makes it very difficult to get this kind of collective approach that we need to Venezuela. Second, if there is some kind of collapse besides everything I've just talked about, you really do run the risk of harming a lot of other countries in the region. Venezuela owes a lot of money to Brazil, mm -hmm. to Panama, to Colombia. That's in jeopardy. Right. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans could flee to Colombia. Border crisis, migration crisis, you've got all that. The only interesting thing is this. If you actually get them to default on their debt, a lot of that debt is also owed to Russia and China. <laughs> and it may force Russia and China to come in and have a real serious conversation oh. with Mr. Maduro about the future. That's interesting. Okay, so you had all these big jobs, big jobs at the White House. You were Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor and in the PDB every day. You had the grinding job of being Deputy National Security Advisor, which is the setting where the deputies at all the various elements of foreign policy making, the Deputy Secretary of State, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, they do all the work up to like 95%. So that's a huge role. Uh, and then you were at the State Department. What was the most fun? What was the most rewarding thing you got to do? Because you saw the government from all these different mm. angles. Um, Look, I was incredibly blessed to get to do uh, all of this and to um, get these different vantage points and experiences. And it's hard to say that one was, you know, was better than another. I mean, look, the incredible uh, privilege of being able to start virtually every day uh, in the presidential daily brief with the president and to sort of hear directly from him where he wanted to take things, what he, what he was concerned about, and to play a small role at least in uh, trying to uh, flag issues for him and to try to start to think through solutions. 
it's hard to replace that. Yeah. There's nothing quite like it. And it's not just the president, although it obviously starts with that. It's just an incredible group of people mm-hmm. who are in that room uh, every single morning. Uh, Susan Rice, the national security advisor. Dennis McDonough, uh, the chief of staff. Lisa Monaco, uh, the homeland uh, security advisor, counterterrorism advisor. The senior leadership of the intelligence community. The vice president. Mm-hmm. A truly, truly extraordinary group of people. So I was blessed there. I got to say, I had a lot of fun at the State Department uh, running around the world uh, trying to uh, to represent the country and uh, and doing diplomacy. Um, Having a team to help you. You know, uh, you, <laughs> you go, see you have like four staffers to, you know, run the, the entire policymaking apparatus. I could I could not get used to people calling me sir. I, don't, <laughs> I didn't think I was old enough for that. But uh, you do go from the White House, which is an incredibly flat yeah. uh, organization and, and small, uh, the National Security Council staff. Also, to from one of the smallest offices in, on the face of the uh, the universe, my, literal my closet, little, yeah. literal closet, to uh, this large bureaucracy with lots of layers and a very large office uh, with its own bathroom and kitchen and everything else you could want. But the privilege of getting to go around the world to represent the United States, uh, to work with other countries on some of the most daunting problems, partners. Um, allies, but also uh, some unfriendly countries, some adversaries. There's nothing uh, also to match that. Yeah. And, you know, it sounds corny, but you'd go into these really fraught, tense situations, uh, negotiations, arguments with uh, other countries, with people yelling and screaming at you about this thing or that thing. And the strange thing was this, knowing that you had literally or figuratively the American flag behind your back in that meeting, was the greatest source of strength and confidence you could imagine. That was a very good answer. Last question for you. Everyone at Crooked Media loves the Vice President, Joe Biden. Uh, have you spoken with him lately? Do you think he wants to come on Pod Save America? If you do talk to him, could you ask him if he wants to come on Pod Save America? And what's the best thing about the guy? What do you think he'll do next? For those of us who are jonesing for our Joe Biden fix, tell us a great story. So the most wonderful thing about the Vice President is that what you see is exactly what you get. That is, there is no difference between the, the public persona and the private persona. Um, he is the definition of authenticity. And I think that's why uh, people love him so much. Yeah. And he is working very hard at uh, finishing a book um, about some of his time in the White House. I think it's going to be very very compelling yeah. on a human level as well as on a substantive level. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's standing up a number of um, different projects, including something I'm working on with him, which is um, something called the um, Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, uh, a think tank and policy institute in Washington, but closely uh, affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania. Cool. Uh, and that'll open its doors formally toward the uh, toward the end of the year. Great. Uh, he's still engaged on the cancer moonshot. Yeah. He is doing a ton. He would love to come on Pod Save America. I think the problem is he says every day, I want to come on Pod Save America. And then, you know, he's got people around him saying, no, you can't do it just yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, so, right, you know, maybe around the time, of the, maybe, maybe when the book launches. Yeah, you want to, like, you want to get some distance from what Obama did, I bet. There's that. <laughs> uh, Tony, thank you so much for doing the show. Uh, it is a blast to hang out with you here in Santa Monica. Let's go fuss around with that Martin they have out there because that's that, a beautiful guitar. That sounds great. We're going to plug in right now. <laughs> okay.
Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.